You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Can I get your opinion on something? And don't, don't answer. Because that question comes with a rhetorical yes from all of us. Because we like to give our opinions. And if somebody asks, can I get your opinion on something, we typically are ready and able to do so. There's a lot of colorful sayings about opinions. Uh, some that are not suited for me to speak even now at this point. But there is something consistent about our human condition, and it's that we love to diagnose other people's problems while ignoring our own. At the very least, we, we like to have opinions about other people's lives while giving ourselves a lot of caveats, excuses, and tons of grace. However, when it comes to other people, we can take a look at someone else's exterior or physical attributes and we begin to write a novel's worth of ideas and opinions about why they are the way they are, where they are in their life. Problem is, even professionals that profile and actually try to make their living figuring out what people are like or what makes them tick, even those people don't get it right many times. In his book, Talking to Strangers, Malcolm Gladwell looks at all kinds of scandals from history and news headlines, and he comes to this conclusion. When it comes to making sense of people that we don't know, we're just not very good or accurate at it. When it comes to making sense of somebody else, a stranger's life, we're not very good, and our opinions usually aren't very helpful. On top of that, and more importantly, and what we're going to look at even more so today is, unlike God, we are unable to see a person's heart. Therefore, we really have no idea about what's going on many times. In our text today, John chapter 9, we're going to be looking at a situation where Jesus' disciples come up to a stranger and they begin to form an opinion, though we're going to find an erroneous one. So we're continuing in our series, Miracles Let Him Be Known. Who? We want to let Jesus be known. A moment ago I was talking about the sharing the love list that you're going to get on the way out. You didn't get it on the way in, you're going to get it on the way out with a magnet on it. So uh, the reality is, is we are called to share the love of Christ. And one of the ways that this happens in the Gospels and one of the ways that it actually should be happening in our lives is there should be things happening around us, miraculous things happening around us that Point to Jesus as the Son of God. And that is exactly why the book of John was written. He was writing to his audience, and his audience he was believing and wanting to know, and that would even include us today, that Jesus is not just the Messiah. Jesus is not just a miracle worker. Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And he is the one and only way to the Father. John 20 says this, you don't have to turn there in your Bible, but it says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, the ones that are written in this book, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
what? The Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the goal. That's the goal of our lives today. So I think our text that we're going to read here in John 9 epitomizes this goal as we see Jesus miraculously healing a blind man. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to John chapter 9. We're going to be starting in verse 1 of this chapter, reading this text this morning, and it says this, as he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sin, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Verse 7, go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. Lord, we pray that you would use your word today. Holy Spirit, illuminate your word today so that we might glorify you, Jesus, and point to the fact that you are, in fact, the Savior of the world. Let's set the context a little bit by talking about where Jesus was coming from. This is actually important, not just in biblical understanding and interpretation, but really in life, is where is somebody coming from so that we know what's going on in this particular story. It didn't just start here. So where is he coming from? We know from chapter 8, as we read in that particular chapter, he'd just come from the situation where the woman had been caught in adultery. The Pharisees bring her out, throw her into the middle of the city, and tell Jesus that that the law requires that she be stoned to death. But what Jesus does is he basically turns everything around and instead of of judging her and having her stoned to death, Jesus points out that everybody needs forgiveness. Oh, well, well, is anybody around here that hasn't sinned? Because sin would require death, so everybody needs forgiveness. So rather than condemn this woman, he forgives her and then he charges her to leave her sinful life. Jesus also taught that he could set people free from sin. He was the one that could do that. Through much of the chapter in chapter 8, he makes the case that a person's behavior after hearing Jesus is more important than their history before hearing Jesus. Aren't you glad about that? Jesus is is saying this is what's most important. And despite him teaching on this truth in the most dramatic of fashion with this woman caught in adultery, we start chapter 9 with the same idea that somehow a person's birth and their current reality are linked together. And this is the focus of the disciples' thinking. It's the focus of their attention And this contrasts, however, how Jesus sees people versus how people see people. And this is in full view in chapter 8 and in chapter 9. And this is really how it goes, even for us today. Because the more I learn about Jesus, the more I read about Jesus, the more I see him in his word and how he responds and loves people, the more I see that I'm not very much like him many times. It's like... Whoa, there's a deep contrast between the way Jesus sees people and the way I see people and form opinions. 
And the more I see and the more I learn, the more I see that I need to be changed into his image. See, we dwell on the shackles of a person's past while Jesus holds the keys to their present and future freedom. When we see people, we often see them stuck in their sin. When Jesus sees people, he always sees their potential for healing and forgiveness. What would happen, church, if we, in focus, right here in our community and where God has called us, what would happen if we consistently saw people with their potential to be healed and forgiven? See, before we unpack our text in John 9, I want to look at what God really wants us to know and do as as we're coming from chapter 8 and what Jesus has been through and and what sets the tone for this text that we just read. I want to make a connection to where Jesus is coming from and how he was undeterred in his work for his Father. Because when we're on mission for God, let me just tell you, at least for me, it doesn't take a lot to get deterred. Not preturbed, that, that too, but deterred. Like, there's, a, there's not a whole lot that it takes to kind of knock me off course from fulfilling the mission that God has for me, but not Jesus. At the end of chapter 8, he says some things that get him in trouble. As a matter of fact, after this whole thing with the woman caught in adultery, Jesus, at the end of chapter 8, himself is in trouble, and the people are trying to stone him and kill him because he says that he's greater than Abraham. He also says that he's the son of God, and he also calls them liars, which really doesn't do a whole lot of great things for people and having good rapport with them. Bunch of liars. That's what you are. And so he's about to be stoned to death. They're trying to kill him. And then the scripture says that he kind of just disappears in the crowd. And that's where this chapter picks up. And here is where I see that I'm different than Jesus too. Like this is a chase scene. And I'm going to get away and then I'm going to cash out and lay low for a little while. But not Jesus. Like he puts the brakes on in the middle of the chase scene and heals a blind man. Why? How? Like get away and and lay low for a little while but he remains at peace and he's completely calm and he's not frantic and he's he's undeterred i think we can learn a little bit and apply a few of the reasons why jesus was so calm and continued to do the work of his father even in the midst of opposition something that we're going to have to learn to do see first of all he was not moved by the praise of people you can take my word for it Having now lived 52 years and being in a lot of situations, particularly even in ministry, you could take my word to the degree you allow yourself to be elated by the praise of people is the degree you will be hurt by the rejection of those same people. So this very hard lesson, one that I believe is a lifelong lesson, it seems, is that you are not the servant of people, but you are the servant of God. This is an issue of priority, not practice. I didn't say that we don't serve people. I'm saying that the reason that we do serve people is because we are first a servant of God. Therefore, you won't live and move based on people's praise of you or expectations of you. And likewise, you won't wilt and die when they denounce you because they will. See, your love for your heavenly father is greater than your fear of people. If Jesus' heart had been turned by the hosannas of the crowd, then his heart would have failed him when those same people yelled, crucify him, days later. 
He was committed to the Father's will first and foremost. He served him and his plan only. And this is how we must live our lives if we're going to be on mission for God and not manipulated by people. God, whatever brings you praise is what I want to do first. So although there were people that were opposing him and no longer praising him but wanting to kill him, he was undeterred in doing the work that the Father had called him to do. We can learn a lot from that. Secondly, another characteristic we see is Jesus' commitment to doing what he had come to do for those who would receive it, regardless of the opposition of those who would not receive it. Can I encourage you today, church, to keep your focus on the ones that God has called you to reach and will receive the serving and the loving that God has poured out through you and not be deterred by the opposition or slander of those who are not God. Our zeal to see people known, uh, see people, see Jesus known as Savior and healer and friend outweighs any opposition or resistance or threat that comes against us and God's purpose for our lives. So back to our text in verse, verse one says that he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. This is different from what Carla taught a few weeks ago. There's pointing out that this man was in fact blind from birth. It's important. Blindness was a problem in this particular era. Far more common than we would think or is more common at least in our context in the West today. Eye disease had few cures. There was a lot of unsanitary conditions, particularly with the water. So it increased the risk of losing your eyesight considerably. I actually saw something a little bit similar to this type of condition when I was in Haiti a few years ago where there was a lot of blindness that was going on because of similar situations. But healing the blind was somewhat of a, of a hallmark of Jesus' ministry. He does this a lot throughout the Gospels. He did it quite a few times. But in this case, it's not irony, but it's purposefulness that Jesus sees a man that cannot see and that no one else is willing to see. He's near the temple. He's sitting there where people walk every single day, walk right by him and act as if they are as blind as he is, at least to his situation. And you could go ahead and say us, because very quickly in verse two, we see the difference between Jesus and his disciples, and I'll add us, because who does Jesus see first? He sees a person. Secondly, he sees a person who needs healing and help and forgiveness. What do the disciples see? The disciples don't see a who, they see a what. They see a theological issue that needs to be discussed and solved right now. Verse two, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You know, like if I'm the blind guy, I'm sitting there going, yo, I'm blind, not deaf. I can hear you. <laughs> like who sinned? The disciples are making an assumption. They form an opinion, if you will, by looking at this guy that there has to be, this is their opinion, there must be a connection between a specific sin and his present suffering. So they probe with this question of who's responsible, the man or his parents. It had to be him in the womb or his parents that sinned, right? Right, Jesus? Those are the only two explanations they can come up with right now. 
And this kind of thinking is not unlike the same thinking that Job's friends had in the Old Testament, where they're like, man, what did you do to God that you got in this situation? The disciples did not look at this man as an object of mercy, but rather as a subject for a theological discussion. It's much easier to discuss an abstract issue like sin than it is to minister to a concrete need in the life of a person who's right in front of you. But Jesus rejects both of these ideas, and so should we. He knows that suffering and sickness and disability and death are in the world because of what Romans says, because of sin and the fall of man. He rejects the explanation that specific disabilities correspond to specific sins. In reality, all physical problems are the result of our fall in Adam because of his disobedience, bringing sin and death and sickness into the world, Romans 5.12. But beyond that, to blame a specific disability on a specific sin committed by specific persons is beyond anybody's ability to know or authority to say. Only God knows why people are born with disabilities, and only God can turn those disabilities into something that will bring good to the people and glory to his name, which is exactly what Jesus does in this story. And isn't this what's most important? Like, let's ask ourselves, even now, because I think it can help us as being those who are supposed to be ministers of mercy. What is more important, the cause of the situation or the cure for our bodies and also our sin? Jesus is more concerned about his present healing to alleviate his present suffering and his future wholeness to eliminate his eternal separation from God than he is about his past sins. See, I think we can be just as callous. Let's think about some situations in our own lives. Poor people, (laughs) alcohol, drugs, lazy. I mean, that's why they are where they are, right? See, whether it's true or not about some situation does absolutely no good to the one who's impoverished. Our callousness only exacerbates the struggling instead of helping the hurting. Sick? Got a disease? (laughs) Well, I mean, they are unhealthy. They got a lot of bad habits. They go to churches a lot, and I'm not talking about the church. That was just threw that in there. Well, that's your opinion. Well, it runs in the family. All of this could be true, but what help does that bring to the one who is sick and suffering? Or if somebody gets in trouble, or if somebody gets arrested, or if somebody loses their life and you hear, well, they brought it on themselves. Well, what do you expect? Look at who they're running with. Look at what they're doing. Remember what I said at the beginning about our opinions. Our moral opinions do not bring healing and hope. Jesus does. What did Jesus during the healing of the 5,000 that we talked about last week just said? Now, none of y'all brought any lunch. Why are y'all going to come out here in the middle of nowhere and not bring your food? Y'all just going to have to starve. No, 
That's not how Jesus responds. That's not how he ever responds. Jesus never rebukes those who seek him. And simply what he does is he feeds the hungry, heals those who have need of healing. Because it's easy to criticize and chastise. But we are to walk in Jesus' footsteps. Instead, what we do is we bless people and we lead them to salvation. And even if we say, well, it was a good theological question that they asked. Here's what we have to agree. What one pastor said, an ounce of help is better than a ton of theory. And I love to theologize, and we should have strong theology. And if you go to church here, you're going to be challenged to do so. But here's the reality. Our orthodoxy, what we learn about God, either informs and helps our orthopraxy, what we do for him, or else it does not matter. So Jesus rejects these questions. He seemingly abruptly squashes this line of thinking. And he says in verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus answered, this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Now, there are a few different thoughts about this verse, but one thing I can be certain of, and I said this a moment ago, we don't know enough to make a determination about some specific sin leading to this specific illness. The main point here is the source of the healing, not the source of of the sickness, and we're talking about somebody's salvation here. I will say because this could be used sometimes to, to speak towards societal things as if, well, the past doesn't matter. That's not what God's saying. That's not what he's teaching here because there's a difference about bringing justice to a society and bringing justification to a soul. It's different. Also, from a translation standpoint, most English translations seem to fall short in how the scripture should be read and interpreted. It's more likely that it should be translated this way. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. Period. But so that the work of God might be displayed in his life, we must do the work of him who sent me while it is still day. See, the purpose clause now explains that Jesus is the one that must do the work along with the disciples, along with this man, along with us today, so that God's work may be displayed in this man's life and in the lives of people around us. Although God is sovereign, yes, and he could have made the man blind in order to show his glory, it seems more likely a better explanation that God has sent Jesus to do the works of healing in order to show his glory. That's what he wants to do. See, Jesus then makes mud plaster from saliva and dirt, and he applies it to this man's eyes. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that to anybody today. In antiquity, spittle was thought to have medicinal powers. That's what I read in a commentary. And here's what I thought when I read that. In antiquity, like, my mama been doing this. Yours has to, like it's a Clorox wipe, you know, uh, it's, come here, baby, let me spit on your face for a minute. <laughs> what? Your mom, your grandma, anybody that was older than you when you were little, they didn't care. Forget, they had no COVID back then, so we just lick our hands and just wipe it on their face. <laughs> a little bit different, but this is the work. So Jesus goes to work. While the disciples wanted to sit around and worry, Jesus is going to work. Church, we've got to be those who put worrying aside and begin to work at the more righteous things. 
We quit worrying about the less important things and begin to work at the more righteous things. When we see people stuck in their sin and in their hardship and in poverty, let's postpone the scrutiny. Well, how'd they get here? Bet they deserved it. And then let's get to work instead, like Jesus, and bind up the brokenhearted, lift up the hurting, encourage the discouraged, bring healing and hope to the hopeless, preach freedom to the captives. This is the heart of Jesus and those that follow him. So Jesus went to work, and in some ways, so did this man. He put him to work too. Oftentimes, we're asking Jesus to come through with a miracle, but we're not willing to do what God has called us to do. And here's what he does. He says, go wash off your eyes. And watch this. As you read it, there's no, go wash off your eyes, and then you'll be able to see. He didn't say that. He didn't say, go wash off your eyes, and I promise you'll get healed. Nope. He just said, go wash off your eyes at the pool of Siloam. There was no go and do this and you'll be well. Just go and do this. And he did. And he was healed. Verse 7, Jesus tells the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. John indicates in parentheses there in the scripture that Siloam means sent, which it does in Hebrew. But the name of this pool bears some symbolic, if you will, importance for Jesus and for his audience. And now for John and the writer, those that will read. More than 20 times in the gospel, Jesus is described as the one who has been sent by the Father sent by God into the earth. In other words, the blind man is being told to go wash in the place called sent by the one who was sent by God. So Jesus is making the point that it is he that is the source of this man's healing, not the pool, not the water. The one who was sent by God is now sending him. The man's obedient, verse seven, he's healed. And as I said earlier, Jesus healing blind people wasn't something that was new. It was somewhat normal. But he also did it in different ways. Just as a side note, you'll see like sometimes he just touched them. Other times, there was other time where he just spit and put it on. There's other times where he makes this mud and he puts it on. He does it in different ways. And I think that's on purpose so that we are focused less on the method of healing and more on the message of the healing. And I'm pretty, pretty, pretty glad for that actually that doesn't have to be the method and in this case we don't find the full message of this healing until later on but even now here's what Jesus message is I'll add to what I said a moment ago God performs miracles in order to display his works which reveal his character nature and purpose secondarily he does not perform them on the basis of the worthiness of the recipient since none of us are ultimately worthy Man, that is so liberating. So this man comes back seeing natural light, but is that enough? No. Is that what Jesus is most about? No. If you remember from chapter 5 and the message that Carla preached, Jesus healed the man who had been crippled for 38 years, not from birth, but probably as a result of sin. And the man stood up and walked. What was the point? Mere physical healing? No. And we can say mere physical healing in view of an infinitely more important spiritual healing that needed to take place. So John 5, 14 says, Afterward, Jesus found this man in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. In other words, I healed you physically, yes, but I have tracked you down to make sure that you know that healing is great, but holiness is the main point. That's the real healing. Your heart, go sin no more. Which leads me to the point of this 
story and that story. Our ultimate healing is seeing Jesus' glory. Our ultimate healing is seeing Jesus for who he truly is. Chapter 9, Jesus does the same thing that he did in chapter 5. Verse 35, 38, you don't have it, but this is what it says. Jesus heard they had cast him out, the man born blind, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now we see all the connections between chapter 8 when he said, before Abraham was, I am when he walked on the water and he said, it is I, I am. The blindness and the healing, Jesus being the light of the world, seeing the glory of Jesus as God and worshiping him was the main point of this story. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the I am who was here before Abraham. The most important thing is that the man sees the glory of Jesus and worships him and that is in fact what he did. That was the ultimate healing, the one that we all need. The other gospels record instances of Jesus healing blind people, but John, as we said before, focuses in on this discussion afterwards of of why. Why is he doing this? Because John's purpose is to reveal that Jesus is the Son of God because that's the only way that any of us can receive the light of Christ and the ultimate healing that we all need is that we see Jesus for who he truly is. Here's what we need to remember today. Salvation in Jesus is available to anyone who will believe. Listen, this is the simplicity of the gospel. It's something you've heard before, but I'm going to say it again because it is the crux of this message. Salvation in Jesus is available to anyone who will believe. When Jesus said in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God would be displayed in him. The work of God is that this man sees natural light and that he sees spiritual light. That's the work of God. That this man has given natural eyes to see and that he's also been given spiritual eyes to see. That he sees the glory of this world and its creation and he also sees the glory of its maker, Jesus Christ, and he worships him. From this I conclude that every disability, whether genetically from the womb or circumstantially from an accident or infectiously from a disease, God has a design and a purpose for his own glory and for the good of people who love him and are called according to his purposes, according to Romans 5, 28, 8, 28. See, when Jesus sees somebody, he sees their need for healing and salvation. Church, what do we see? Because we need to see people in the same way that Jesus did. Whether it was the woman caught in adultery or the blind man from birth or anything that we might see today in our society, these stories highlight in particular how people view others through the lens of sin and begin to form their own opinions, but Jesus views through a lens of salvation and healing. Therefore, a great need whether physical or spiritual, can present an opportunity for a great miracle. Yes, we can pray for healing, and we should, but that is to point to the greater healing that anyone needs and that everyone needs, and that is the salvation of Jesus Christ. These great miracles point to an even greater God. His greatness is revealed first in how he sees people, and then in the miracles of healing, and in the greatest miracle of all, salvation. Perhaps we're the ones that are blind at times. We are blind to the reality of who God is and his mission here on the earth. His desire to heal and to save no matter what conditions people are currently in or where they've come from. 
See, if we focus on people's sin instead of their need for healing and salvation, it will become an obstacle for them receiving the love of Christ. This can be true in how we see ourselves as well. Like the disciples and the Pharisees, this story, we often focus on our own or other sins, failures, and the sin patterns passed down from parents among other opinions. But when we do that, we miss the healing and the saving power of Jesus. See, the miracle of sight in this text and later the miracle of this man's salvation is centered around the question of this man's sin. Yet Jesus doesn't withhold physical healing or spiritual healing from him. See, it's important for us to see that God and his mission is consistent no matter what a person's sin history might be. Jesus sees and speaks about this man as an opportunity for the glory of God to be displayed. He isn't so concerned about his sin or his parents' sin being the cause. Rather, he invites this man into a moment to participate in the work of the Father and the glory of God. His sin nor his condition disqualified him from the chance to receive healing and believe in Jesus. If Jesus doesn't disqualify him, neither should we disqualify others or ourselves. See, the opportunity to participate in the works of God is only for a short time for us. That's kind of what he's saying. As long as Jesus is in the earth, and he now the light of Christ, the Bible is very clear, shines through the church. It's us. Jesus is still in the earth, not physically, but through his people, the church. He's still in the earth. So we have an opportunity to, uh, to participate in the works of God in our lives and in others' lives. Jesus sees the man. He sees his suffering. He sees an opportunity for the work of God to be revealed. And I hope that's what we see. When we see people, we see an opportunity. We see the opportunity for us to do the work of God so that people can see Jesus for who he truly is. Ultimately, a scene in Jesus' answer, even in Nicodemus in John 3, all of us, must be born again. The only thing that matters about one's family of origin and this discussion is that all families pass sin from one generation to the next. The scripture's clear. Therefore, all family members have to be, can be, born again into the family of God. In essence, every single one of us are blind from birth and must respond to Jesus for our healing and forgiveness of sin. Do we see everybody around us equally in need and capable of receiving salvation from Jesus? Or do we see people as too far gone? This whole text helps us see that God's desire is to save people from their sin, not condemn them because of it. Even back into chapter 8, again and again, we're all born into sin. We're all born into brokenness, and it presents itself in various forms. But God desires to heal us, save us, and restore us, our hearts. See, the miracle of healing from blindness is actually the lesser miracle. The biggest miracle is salvation, always will be. Seeing who God is here helps us understand that every encounter we have with people is an opportunity for God's glory to be revealed physically and spiritually. When we see a need, there's an opportunity for God's glory to be revealed through us. Can I encourage you today that miracles are one way to introduce people to Jesus? If we see a need, then pray. Don't be afraid to pray for somebody. Don't be afraid to be an answer to that prayer if you're able. But where there's things that are beyond your ability and only God's supernatural hand of healing can come in, then still pray and ask God for an opportunity for his mission of healing and salvation to be seen through our lives as a church. The miracle of this man's sight was a precursor to the miracle of his salvation, though. 
His sin history wasn't an obstacle or a hindrance to his healing. And we have an amazing privilege of participating in God's work, being on display, even in dire circumstances. We can help others believe in Jesus, give them the words, and we can pray for healing. We should. What starts as pain and suffering can end in glory if God chooses to give us the opportunity for him to work in us and through us. Today, here's what I want us to believe. I want us to believe in Jesus for our own healing and salvation. And I want us to believe that he can heal and save others no matter who they are. I want us to boldly invite people to know Jesus and to pray for them to be healed and saved. I want us to do what I said a moment ago. I want us to share the love of Christ that has been so freely given to us. That's the challenge today. It doesn't matter why a person is where they are. What truly matters is that God has a purpose and a plan for their life and he could be using you as an instrument to pray for them and to bring healing into their lives. So that's what we're gonna pray today. Yes, maybe you have some type of physical need. I'm, I'm willing for us to pray for that, absolutely. I continue to do that. I, I had some serious knee problems going on a couple of weeks ago and I was in Anaheim and I went up to two of the guys that I know just pray and have you know believe God and see signs and wonders around them all the time and I was like could you pray for my knee because I don't want to be walking around in a brace or unable to do anything that I like to do and and they did now I had to do some things too I went to work as well I didn't like go you know do jumping jacks and squats and just yeah I, I was I trusted the Lord but we want to pray we want to pray. I don't care what it is we want to pray and let God have the opportunity to do something miraculous in your life but even beyond that Anything that happens like that is to point to the fact that the God the Father loves you and that Jesus is in fact the Son of God and the greatest healing that can take place is the healing of your heart unto salvation so that whatever we have healing here, which would be temporary because we're all going to meet our maker at some point, can be parlayed into something that is forever and eternal in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.